You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, is a guest I'll even go so far as to say I was been lusting after after a while uh, because of the website blog that he owns called Havoc Journal. Um, it's a, just an incredible website that has a lot of amazing military stories similar to what you hear here on the Hazard Ground. More on him in just a moment. First, our normal announcements. Uh, don't forget to, guys, continue to leave us five-star reviews on Apple. Uh, help grow the show. Get that algorithm working in our favor here. doesn't have to be a lengthy review. In fact, I posted a couple of uh, reviews and emails that we got on our social media account uh, to let everybody know that we appreciate it in the, the comments and certainly love hearing from you guys. And follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Continue to support the show through our promotion with Amazon. Go to our website, HazardGround.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. Uh, you'll get redirected right to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you spend, and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. As well, it works on your smartphone. It'll redirect you right to the Amazon app. So if you save all your credit card information and everything, very easy, very convenient. Just go to HazardGround.com first. All right, this week's guest uh, is a retired lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army who spent over 27 years in uniform. Uh, he has a military intelligence background and an infantry background. He's had assignments with 101st 2ID, uh, 5th Special Forces Group, 160th SOAR, and the Joint Special Operations Command. He has seven tours in Iraq and Afghanistan throughout his career. Also spent some operational deployments in Egypt, Philippines, and Korea. Uh, he currently has multiple degrees. And when I say multiple, I think the exact number here is, and let me just look at this, he has six Count them six, five, sorry, five college degrees, including the latest one from Yale University. Currently, his job title is the chair for the study of special operations at West Point's Modern Warfare Institute, and he's a contractor with SOCOM's Joint Special Operations University, and he is also, finally, uh, the executive director of the nonprofit Veterans Advocacy Organization, the Second Mission Foundation. He is Charlie Faint joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Charlie, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Mark, thanks so much for having me on the show. I've listened for many, many years, as we talked about before I came on, and I'm very pleased to be here. So thanks for having me on the show. Uh, again, I tell you, I like it. I feel like I finally caught, I feel like the Roadrunner finally caught the, I mean, the Coyote finally caught the Roadrunner. Been a huge fan of Havoc Journal for years. Um, and Marty Scovland, who is one of your writers, was one of our earlier guests on the show. Uh, and just, you know, if you guys follow Havoc Journal, uh, particularly on Instagram. That's where I like I, I consume most of the content because it's short and it's sweet, but there are so many just amazing nuggets of stories where people literally, and it, it speaks right to me because they pour their heart out about their combat experience, um, and, and you seem to figure out a way to find the most important nugget of the whole thing that just sort of sucks me in, uh, and I'm just so attracted to all the work that you guys do uh, because, again, it's very similar to what, we're doing here. Uh, you guys just do it in a little bit more of a written format as opposed to a, a video and an audio one like we do. But nonetheless, uh, I love the work. I love the authors. I love the fact that you have 
um, people like us who, who are telling their experience and sharing it with others at a, at a very intimate and personal level. And I think as we go down the road of this in the post-global war on terror, uh, veterans continue to be at the forefront with a lot of different things. Um, the, the way you're sharing that information is so important and so critical. Well, thank you, Mark. And I agree. I think one of the most therapeutic things that veterans and family members can do is just share their stories. And you mentioned Marty Scovelin. Marty's actually the founder of the Havoc Journal. He started in 2013. That was his original guy to kind of run the blog side for him, edit, publish, et cetera. And Marty and I are still friends. He's moved on to a lot of different things. He worked for Black Rifle Coffee Company for a while as their editor-in-chief. He's over at Task and Purpose now. In between, he's done a number of different things. He's a, an accomplished author. He's a, a war correspondent. He's done a number of great things. Can't, can't say enough good things about Marty and the thing that he started and what we've continued to run at the Havoc Journal. So, yeah, I, I write for Havoc Journal. I've written for a number of years under a pseudonym, especially when I was active duty and under my real name. And lots of other vets and family members and first responders have been able to tell their story through it. It's been very rewarding and very exciting as well. Now, you're just recently retired, like, you know, earlier in or late 2022, I should say. Yeah, I retired on the 1st of November after wow. 27 years. It was, it's been a great ride. I'm very grateful for what the Army has afforded me to be able to do, especially my time at West Point in, in the special operations community. And I'm looking forward to being retired. It's nice now, as you can see, you and your audience can see, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to you live from the th- thriving metropolis of Highland Falls, New York, right outside the South Gate of West Point, there in my go. bedroom studio right now in the middle of the day. And it's, it's been quite good. And we let my hair grow out a little bit. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, listen, all, all the blessings of retirement to you going forward. But uh, we always start back at the beginning. How and why did you get in the Army? So my dad was in the Army. He was in for 26 years. Wow. He was a Green Beret back before. So you guys got a half a half a century between the two of you of feints in the service, right? Yeah, long history of it. Both my grandfathers got drafted in World War II. My, my wow. father's father was a cook at a German POW camp in northern alabama which until recently i didn't even know was a thing that's how he actually met my grandmother and wow. my my maternal grandfather was in the in the army air corps it would have been part of the air force that that existed and yeah. he helped load bombs and do bomb damage assessments in the uk during world war ii my wife lola was also in for 10 years she got out when we started having children it was a little hard for both of us to be in highly operational units and have children at the same time so she made the decision to get out and we have two lovely daughters, and haven't regretted it. Amazing. So uh, you get in. Let's do the math here. Twenty-seven years. So we're talking nineteen ninety-five-ish yeah. in that in that range. Um, what, did you know what you wanted out of the military, or was it just more like the family business at this point in time? It's just what everybody did. Both my grandfathers, several of my uncles, my dad—they just did it, and it seemed really cool. Dad was in the 82nd. He was a, a Green Beret. He went on to JSOC. He later commanded a unit that we would now refer to as Task Force Orange. So he had a very exciting career. I wrapped it up as the J2 for SOCOM. So I looked at that and was like, that's pretty exciting. At the same time, the, the relationship my father and I had and the way I looked up to him and, and my mother is whatever he would have done, I probably would have done it. Dad was an athlete. He went to University of North Alabama on a basketball scholarship and got offered to try out for a pro team. Elected not to. Uh, I have no athletic talent whatsoever. I think the only thing I ever won remotely athletic was a bowling tournament in the Philippines uh, two or three years ago. Okay, and I probably would have tried to do that. Whatever Dad did is probably what I would have tried to do. So that's that's how I got in. Um, did you know you wanted to be a Green Beret or in special operations too, as well? Because that's what he did, or is you, were you sort of letting the Army dictate that path for you? 
So I wanted to green, be a Green Beret. I never was. I served in 5th Special Forces Group as an intel guy and, and was really proud of my service there. But yeah, I wanted to do what he did. I wanted to do cool things. And I wanted to serve my country. That's a very strong culture in in my family is a culture of service. So I went to Georgia Military College down the road from you, Milledgeville. Yep. I, I did yeah. two years there as a junior college, graduated from GMC. And then transferred over to Mercer, which is where I earned my commission from 1995. Came in under the military intelligence with a detail of the infantry. So I was a branch detail guy. Did four years in the 101st and switched over to MI. And that's where I've been ever since. Wow. Uh, I'm curious about your time in 5th Special Forces because I deploy with those guys. We'll yep. have to compare some notes down the road. I'm sure we might know some of the same people. but No doubt. Um, so you signed up in this pre-9-11 world. I mean, what were your sort of expectations? I mean, because, again, you know, after the Vietnam era, we have, all things considered, about 20 years of relative peace, right? Um, uh, did you really think that you'd end up making it a full 20? Was it always your intention to do 20 or – it was at first, and, and maybe we'll get into this down the road, but I had a really bad experience in the 101st and I actually ended up trying to get out twice afterwards really? and and couldn't for various reasons. The first time I had a ad, so I had an active duty service obligation, tried to get out after being the 101st, had to stay in, went over to the 2nd Infantry Division, had another bad experience over there right when 9-11 happened, actually submitted paperwork to get out uh, and my boss, my, my next higher boss in the organization sat on it because he knew that I wrote it at a very emotional time. It wouldn't have been very good for me to, to, to submit the resignation letter that I submitted. And thank goodness he did because we all got stop loss and I couldn't get out. And after that, I got in the special operations community, never looked back, really found my niche there. Yeah. It's, isn't it how it's very similar, isn't it? How it kind of wakes you up to a world that, uh, you know, sort of fits your personality better. When you say bad experience in 101st and 2ID, are we talking leadership here? Yeah, we, 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 I don't think this, this term existed when, when you and I were coming up, but we, we refer to it as toxic uh, leadership now. Yeah. And Well, we just call him an asshole. Like, that's, you know, like that's, <laughs> that guy's an asshole. Like, he's yeah. not toxic. He's just an asshole, and, and that was good enough for me. Yeah, that happened a couple times, and it got to the point where I was beginning to think it's me. Maybe it is just me. Because two very bad experiences back to back early in my career, and then over time I found out, yeah, it wasn't me so much because I, I went on to do some pretty exciting and useful things after that. Once I got some good leadership and a, yeah. a good unit, I mean, it, you never know how bad bad leadership is until you realize what good leadership looks like. Um, especially when you're when you're a young lieutenant and you just get in and you don't really have a taste for. I mean, you know, you do the ROTC thing. Uh, if you didn't go to West Point, like I didn't go to West Point, but if you do the ROTC thing, you have a much vastly different military experience than those who did go to a service academy. If you're not prior service, again, you have a vastly mil- different military experience. And so I had, you know, I had nothing. Like I knew nothing about the military. Like I ended up in the Ordnance Corps because I didn't know that after OBC I was going to a different post. I picked it based <laughs> off of where the OBC was because I, I literally knew nothing. Um, and so, you know, that, that ought to tell you how, how much uh, I had going in, but it was just sort of the same thing. It's just like one of those things where you look back on certain leaders and certain phases of your career. And it's that old, you know, if I only knew now what I knew, if I only knew then what I know now kind of deal. And you start to realize, but you know, the only thing that has ever done for me is inspire me to never be that way and to That's lead right. differently, uh, around the people that I, I choose to be around, um, to lead with empathy, to lead with, you know, a sense of, of connection to the person, not the job title or the rank or the soldier, you know, all that stuff is there. Um, but, you know, ultimately, you know, motivation and, and motivating people is about connecting with them. Um, 
pretty much everybody in the army is going to do what you say, but that's not the point. That's not leading. Um, if you want to be effective and you want people to, to do what you need them to do at the level you need them to do it consistently, they have to want to be around you. Uh, and that is, or they have to want to follow you. And that's, that's a, you know, something I think a lot of leaders miss. And if they miss it early, chances are they don't catch it late. That's absolutely right. It's always about the people. That's one of the things I try to emphasize to the cadets here at West Point. Even though I'm retired and not teaching, as you mentioned, I still have an affiliation with West Point through the Modern War Institute. And I'm still the officer in charge of West Point's combat, combat weapons team, a highly competitive club with a lot of great cadets in it. And what I try to tell them, it really doesn't matter where you go in the Army. It matters who you're with. So the 101st Airborne Division, that was a clutch assignment. I asked for that and just had a terrible experience there. And I loved my time in the 2nd Infantry Division, although the leadership there wasn't great either. It's always the people. And just like you said, Mark, I took it upon myself to, to try to not be that. I think you can learn a lot from bad leaders just like you can from good leaders. And I decided I'm not going to be that, that guy. I'm not going to lead like that. And I also think that everything happens for a reason. And one of the reasons I got to 5th Special Forces Group and got my, my foot in the door of the Special Operations community was the timing of everything that happened, the bad events that happened, put me on a timeline that I was just able to walk into the 5th Special Forces Group at a time where they needed intel leaders, and they let me command the group in my detachment and the support company and got my first deployment out of it. So if the if my career had gone as I expected to have, it that never would have happened. So things work out in the end, and things happen yep. for a reason, and that's where I am now. Well, it's what I always say. The Army puts you where you're supposed to be. They always have. They always will. For one reason or another, you end up exactly where you're supposed to be. You know, and it's weird, too. You could talk about the people. I, my first deployment, um, they sent me with a hodgepodge group of soldiers who might have been the bottom of the barrel. And I knew it going in. I looked at it as we were doing train-up. I looked around. I go, they're, they're setting me up to fail here. Like, they are sending me to set up to fail. And while the soldiers weren't great, my leadership was outstanding. In the, in the special operations community. And that vote motivated me to motivate them to do better. And then on my second deployment, it was absolutely flipped. The soldiers I had were great. I didn't really appreciate the leadership that I had. Now, again, I'm going back to a conventional unit. And so, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it through a different prism going, you guys just don't get this, you know, the way at least I understood it for my first deployment. So you get that sort of dichotomy and you understand where you put your focus matters uh, and what you put your energy into matters and, and, Ultimately, that's what you can, you know, take out of it. You mentioned that you were in second ID on 9-11. Um, yeah. You know, at this time, were you still doing infantry stuff or you had you branch detailed already to MI? No, all my all my infantry stuff was in the 101st. I was actually okay. a company commander in Delta Company 102 MI that I don't think exists anymore after the reorganization of 2ID. We were in a town called Weijambu, which is kind of on the, the main infiltration route, north to south, the main invasion route. And... It was a very interesting time to be there. I had the linguist company for the division, so everyone except for like the officers and the supply sergeant all spoke Korean. So we had a very interesting and unique relationship with the Republic of Korean Army and the local nationals that were right outside the gate because my soldiers could speak Korean to them. So we we did a lot of things with them. Nine eleven happened, and I remember seeing seeing it happening on on the news reports and listening to it and not really understanding at the time. What was happening? And a lot of people said, "Hey, I knew as soon as the first tower got hit that it was a terrorist attack." I didn't. Yeah, I'm I with remembered. you. I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I mean, the other thing too is I'm from New York, so I was like chasing down friends and family who worked in Lower Manhattan, um, trying to get on the phone with people and my parents and everything else. And so, but yeah, I, I never thought initially like, "Oh God, we're going to war." <laughs> 
Well, it was, so I remember just random facts. I remember that in the forties or fifties that a B-52 accidentally flew into the, the Empire State Building. And I was like, oh, well, that must have been what happened because no one's going to hijack a plane and fly it into a building. I mean, that's that's never happened before. That's, and then it happened again with the second plane hit. And in my mind, it's like, oh, they must be re-reporting the second, the, the first one twice. At any rate, I, I had no idea what was going on, but it became very clear that we were in a completely different world. And that was a very interesting time to be in Korea. The The Koreans were so supportive. The, the local police surrounded our little posted stamp of a base, Camp Essayons, and to make sure that, that no one could get to us. And the uh, the local nationals would come up and they would put flowers in the chain link gates of our of our oh, fence. Wow. And I got a I got a very nice message from a professor at a local college that we worked with expressing his support for us and his hatred of terrorists. So it was a very interesting time to be in Korea, Mark. Yeah, I mean, you know, to say the least, it's uh uh, painful days, right? Um, so at this point in time, you know, you are how deep into your tour with two idea you're, are you on your way out? You said, I know you said you had wanted to get out and, and, and yeah. ask for a resignation. Um, and, and ultimately you didn't get it. And ultimately everybody gets stop lost. Right. Right. I mean, I, I got off active duty three months prior to nine 11. So I, <laughs> I, I just made the cut, uh, so to speak, but you know, um, did you have a plan on when you, if you were going to get your resignation, did you have a plan on what you wanted to do? Did you know? I did actually. I had a, I had a very detailed and workable plan. So my family is from Huntsville, Alabama, and 20th Special Forces Group is headquartered there. Yep. So mm-hmm. I was going to get out. I was going to going to go back to Huntsville, Alabama, and I was either going to join 20th Group or the Ordnance Unit that's headquartered there. They had an EOD unit. I, I think it's probably yep. still there. Mm-hmm. And EOD always just sounded really cool to me. I'm very technically oriented, and I was like, "Hey, bombs are cool, so why not go do that?" So that was my plan. Nine eleven happened, and like we, you know, we talked about the problem with leadership, but I had a lot of time to think about it when I left command in Korea. I had six more months left on a tour because I had to I had to sign up for another tour in order to take command. So I had six more months, and. I'm sure you've experienced this too, Mark, and a number of other hazard ground uh, leaders have experienced kind of the the mental drawdown of going from being a company commander and being in charge of being able to help people to just doing nothing on division staff. So they sent my wife and me back to Fort Hood to participate in a warfighter. And I had a lot of time to think about what, what was going to happen next. And I was disgruntled for a lot of different things. I was I was unhappy. And then the way we were treated at Fort Hood, they put us in the back 40 of Fort Hood, and we could only leave the area that we were at as observer controllers if one, one of the privates on the detail drove us into town. So I went from being a company commander, being responsible for 100 people and a million dollars of equipment, to not being able to, to leave the barracks they stuck me in unless I you know, have permission from a, a private. I had a letter from dad so I could go into town. Like, you know what? I don't need this anymore. Uh, this has been two really bad experiences. This must be what the whole army's like. Peace, I'm out. It was a whole like half-baked quitting scene in my resignation letter that I sent back to my boss. But like I said, very wisely sat on it for me because before I got back from that warfighter, we'd been stop loss and it could have been really awkward uh, rolling back in, dealing with the 06s and 07s that I had to deal with if that letter would have got out. Yeah, uh, needless to say, uh, smart people sometimes take care of you more than you think. Um, 
And I remember, I remember the 06 who signed my packet, um, looked at me three times and dead in the eye and asked, are you sure this is what you want? Are you sure? And, you know, 20-whatever-old me was like, yes, 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 just give me what I want, you know, and you don't realize that sometimes they're doing the right thing by you more than you could ever imagine. Um, so you end up getting stop-lost. Uh, and is your next role with uh, 5th Special Forces Group? Well, it's very interesting because of the, the, my career trajectory, I went, I took command before I went to the advanced course. Okay. So I, there was a lot of discovery learning in command mm-hmm. and then went back to Fort Huachuca, was in the advanced course, learning all the things that would have been really helpful to know while I was a company commander. And then at the time, the way that the assignments would work is a branch manager would come to all the different places where people were in the, in the courses and things like that. And they had a list. And they said, okay, on this list, based on your order of merit, what do you want? Where do you want to go next? And 5th Special Forces Group sounded really cool. And at that time, the two highest priority fills were for command and for Korea, because Korea, pre-9-11 is where you went if you wanted to be hard in the Army, do something hard, you go to Korea. But because I'd literally done both of those, my branch manager was like, hey, which one of these do you want? So I and another person who happened to be in my squad took the two slots they had for 5th Special Forces Group, and that's how I ended up there. Okay, so now you, you get there. I mean, what is your expectations walking in? You just get out of this really bad sort of leadership environment and back-to-back assignments. What are you thinking and feeling as you're heading to a world that maybe your dad told you about a little bit or maybe you had a little bit of an understanding but didn't really 100% know what you were getting into? Yeah, my dad was actually in 5th Group. So he was in 5th Group <laughs> when it was at Fort Bragg. So – and that was that was seventies. So of course everyone nobody there knew him. He was a, a team leader in I think it was Bravo Company, second of the fifth. And it was a completely different duty station. This is this is at Campbell now, he was at Bragg. So I went in thinking all kind of great thoughts about how awesome Special Forces was, and it is. I'm not trying to badmouth Special Forces. But when I got there, the the video didn't quite match my imagination. The grass was unmowed. The barracks that they had us in were run down because they were building a, a new area for a fifth group to work in. When I took over the group in my detachment, we were literally out at the old jail on Fort Campbell, uh, which was interesting and, and things didn't work there. And it was internet was, was sketchy, et cetera, et cetera. But what I found out over time was fifth group was very good at the things that kind of mattered, not the things that looked good. And I particularly found that out when I went to Iraq in 2004 as my first deployment course the guys in fifth group had been involved since the very beginning yep so my first deployment got to really see what fifth group was about was very impressed and very grateful for that experience where do you go in your first deployment i was uh we were at balad so okay. we stood we stood up the siege of soda at balad between yep. us and 10th group okay and that was the rotation back then fifth and 10th because i had yep. both of those I had both of those guys. Um, I came in with third bat, 10th group, and then fifth, second bat, 5th group, and then second bat, 10th group came in. So I went through three rotations and about uh, 15 months of, uh, of different SF um, battalions and companies coming and rolling through. Um, you know, Balad was interesting at that time in 04 because it wasn't, you know, it was a little bit away from obviously the center of Baghdad and what was going on. Uh, and they ended up creating this huge base up there, right? Like yep. it, it ended up becoming one of the biggest logistical support activity areas in all of, in all of Iraq. Um, what were you guys charged with doing up there at the time, other than standing up siege of soda? I mean, were you actually doing Intel operations at that point? We, we were, but it's an interesting situation for Intel work in special forces 
in general, especially at that time. Of course, this is 2004, and I'm sure things are a lot different now. But we weren't entrusted to do a whole lot intel-wise. For example, mm-hmm. my CI human collectors were were not allowed to go out immediately around Balad and do a whole lot of work there because we had SF guys to do that. My Sades, of course, were out hooking and jabbing with the teams. But the there is no or there was no selection process for the intel side for for support side in general for a fifth group or any other groups so you'd get people in who were needs of the army just like i did i told you about how i got to fifth group there was no tryouts there was no screening process it was just pay pay grade and, and mos so we had some good people on the support side but a lot of people who weren't great so over time the sf guys tr- trusted the support side less and less and less let us do less and less stuff which is one of the things that led me to leave fifth group and go across the airfield literally to the 160th because they had a tryout process for everybody. So on the support side, we were, we were equivalently good to the operators that were supporting in a way that we weren't in special forces. When you get to your first deployment, um, do you have any conversations with your dad ahead of time about this, considering he had seen combat himself? So what was interesting about dad's experience, he, he was a veteran of uh, Desert Storm. Mm-hmm. and panama and i don't think yeah. he was in granada but he was yeah. he was in units that supported it but that was all as an intel guy so okay. he joined sf at the end of the vietnam war he never deployed to vietnam he's a vietnam era guy not a vietnam vet so we had talks about about all kind of things about about what what it's like to be in the army what it's like to be an officer etc but we didn't really talk about what to expect in combat in Iraq, because his experience was, was pretty different than mine. You know, he spent most of his time in Desert Storm in Saudi Arabia and crossing over after the the battle kicked off. But of course, that whole thing was over in something like 100 hours. <laughs> Whereas by 2000, by the time I got there in 2004, we'd been at war for three years and been at war in Iraq for at, at least a year at that point. So it was, yep. it was a way different experience. Um, does anything like, you know, from a Contact with the enemy standpoint happened on that first deployment? So all of my deployments, so like you mentioned, I deployed seven times. All of them were very short and very safe deployments for right. me. I mentioned that fifth group didn't allow us at the group level to do a lot on the support side. So there were plenty of guys going out and getting shot up in convoys and things like that, trolling for gunfights. I never did any of that. I think that I got shot at close enough to earn a combat action badge eventually, but <laughs> Most of the stuff that was coming in at Balad, and, and you were there, you remember, it was more like to whom it may concern versus someone trying to kill me specifically. Right, yeah. If, if the mortar landed in the spot you were standing and they got lucky enough, that was it. Yeah, and that actually happened to one of one of the my colleagues, Paul Cyberson, which the Siege of Soto base was eventually named after. So Paul worked in the S3 shop when I was working in the S2 shop before I took command. So we knew each other and we were friendly. I won't flatter myself to say we were friends, but I knew who Paul was. And he got wounded in Afghanistan, leading a team there. And then he was standing in line at the PX, waiting to to go in, and uh, and direct fire killed him. So yeah, there was an element of danger there, and certainly people did get killed on Balad. But I never felt like I was in danger personally. Yeah, you know, and again, uh, that that uh, changes the combat experience. It doesn't make it any less, but it, it certainly gives you a different viewpoint, uh, and especially given the nature of your job. Um, you know, I would I would argue that probably some of your intel collectors uh, were my, my more directly in harm's way. But you know, the the intel success world uh, measures things a little bit differently, right? I mean, 
your job isn't to worry about kicking down doors. Your job is to give information to other people so they can go do it. And that's really the measure of success of where you guys are throughout it. And we don't find high-value targets without the work that you guys do, period. That was kind of my attitude. I was very proud of what I did, but I always try to make sure that people understand the limits of it. I literally never fired my weapon in combat. I'm not embarrassed about that. It wasn't my job. If you got a, a field-grade intel officer on the FOB, uh, shooting at people, then a lot of things have gone horribly we, we, wrong. We have a point. dire situation at this point in time. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was interesting. And, and I also tell, especially the cadets I talk to, because they, they want to know all about it, it's straight up. I've, I've never killed anyone directly. I hope a lot of people ended up dead uh, due to the information I helped provide to the, the guys who went out on the ground every night. But that wasn't my role. And I think success in the military is all about knowing your role and fulfilling it. And that's what I tried to do. You could tell them it's an overrated experience. for sure and it it is um i just and much like you you know there is a there's a difference between you doing it yourself and you giving the order for somebody else to do it right um either way uh i i i've always impressed this in a them or me situation i'd rather it be them and that's the succinct way to 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 sum it up but um I don't know. Maybe for some guys, it's not overrated. For me, it was overrated. I, I, I if it didn't happen, I wouldn't. Don't feel like I'd be missing out on anything in life. So you're not. So don't uh, don't lose any sleep. Not that you would. Um, so when you go over to 160th SOAR, how does? I know you said you weren't really doing much intel with Fifth Group uh, itself, but like, wh- how does the level of intel work you're doing change now that you're with uh, the 160th? It was very a very different experience. To begin with, I had to try out for the 160th, and it was very uncertain whether I was going to get in or not. I, out of sheer coincidence, I am processed fifth group with a, with a fellow MI officer who actually happened to be prior service SF, who was going to the 160th the same time I was going to fifth group. And the guy lived in my neighborhood off post. It was, it was an interesting coincidence. So over time, I was in fifth group. Fifth group was great to me, had a lot of great experiences there, but it was time to move on. And I wanted to do something where as a support guy that I was, I was on the same level as the people that I was supporting. And I felt that I couldn't do that in fifth group. So when 60th was right across the way, my, my colleague over there was like, hey, you should try out. I tried out for them. It was an interesting experience. It was not easy. I didn't think I was going to get it little psychological operations in the assessment process where they actually told me at the end of it, Hey, uh, we're sending you back to fifth group. At that point, I was sure I wasn't going to get in anyway. So I was like, Roger, sir, I understand. He's like, well, you didn't let me finish. Uh, I'm sending you back to fifth group to pack your shit and come on over. Congratulations. You're going to second battalion. So from the very beginning, it was way different, Mark, in a good way. Yeah. um, Now, when you start to, be able to get intelligence where you're executing, you know, actionable intelligence. Um, yeah, it, it's insane to me because you guys work such insane hours because the intelligence community and the information never stops flowing, right? Like, it's not like just because everybody's sleeping, people aren't actively searching for uh, intelligence and information. So what's your operational tempo like here when you hit the 160th? So the 160th, we did everything that the pilots did. We would try to, obviously, we're not flying the helicopters. Right. I had a very good relationship with the, with the pilot, especially 2nd Battalion. Every battalion has its own personality. I think 2nd was probably the best one, best fit for me. And uh, Colonel Evans was our battalion commander, later went on to lead the regiment and became a, a major general, I think, before he retired, headed up cadet command. So very high-achieving guy. And it, everything was about the mission. 
And I've written about this in the in the past about the, the ethos of the 160th. Everything is so competitive. Everything we did, I, I got introduced to Call of Duty through the 160th because that's what the pilots wanted to play every night when they came back in. Guy they couldn't, they couldn't the just top. play Madden? They couldn't play Madden like the rest of us? <laughs> well, I, I don't think they, they felt they could dominate the support guys quite as much. Uh, yeah, in Madden that's what it was. <laughs> You know, guy walked through the talk juggling one night and everyone wants to juggle uh, pull-up competitions. Everything was super competitive, but they were super close. And I felt that because I had to try out to be in that unit in the first place and I had to demonstrate competence to stay, that I was respected and valued there in a way that I wasn't in my previous unit. So that was a great experience with, there with those guys. And you asked about the, the work. The work as, the only thing that was interesting about 160 is of course were very tied to the weather. So there were, in fact, periods where we didn't have a lot to do in Afghanistan in particular because we got weathered out. So you're, you're prepping, you're playing Call of Duty, you're lifting, you're eating, you're doing team building activities. But there are no days off. We worked every day. We worked as hard as we could every day, went and lifted, ate, and went to bed, rinse, repeat the next day. And that's how it was for us and many other units over there in Afghanistan and Iraq. So you had two deployments to Iraq before you get to Afghanistan, correct? So one, one, to, one to Iraq first, and then I think uh, three Afghanistan, and then back, back okay. to Iraq twice, and then one more in Afghanistan. General question. Yeah. Um, the intel in Iraq versus the intel in Afghanistan. I mean, look, you're in, if you're in Iraq, you're obviously in Baghdad. You're in a metropolis. There's a lot more people. There is uh, a lot more accessibility to things that you don't necessarily – I mean, in Afghanistan – you could hike for a day and find nobody uh, and, and come up empty with nothing. So, you know, how, how, does that, how did that differ for you uh, as far as gathering is concerned? So you brought, you brought up a great point, Mark, and the process was the same. So the, the F3 EAD, find, fix, finish, exploit, analyze, disseminate process that JSOC and the, the, the task force below it utilized extensively, the process was the same. But, of course, they're very different operating environments and very different mission sets. And one of the things that would frustrate me, especially in Afghanistan in the later part of my deployment cycle, was people coming over from Iraq and saying, hey, in Iraq, we does this look like Iraq to you, bro? No. We're in a completely <laughs> different fight here. And I've you're actually spent more time in Iraq than you did. So don't tell me how you did it in Iraq. You're in Afghanistan. This is how we're doing it here. No, and, and again, I uh... – I've tried to explain that, you know, I've, to, to civilians listening who, you know, who follow the show, we certainly love you guys, but I've, I've said that a hundred times before, that it's it was two different wars. They're not the same. Yeah. I mean, the enemy is the same per se, but, um, you know, you're not, first of all, you're not in an urban environment like you are in most of Iraq, right? Most of Iraq mm-hmm. was done in an urban environment, house clearing, streets and everything else. That ain't the case in Afghanistan. I mean, you get you get a couple of small villages at the bottom of a valley, but it could take you three days to get from one to the other. And you know, I've said it repeatedly: there are there are Afghans who could live literally one mile straight line distance from each other and never see each other their entire lives. That's right. There's no there's no way they would ever connect with each other unless they felt like traversing a mountain. There's no way they would ever connect with each other. So, um, it, it is a completely different fight and a completely different you know way of doing things. Um, how did you find? the sort of hardness of the targets that you were going after in Iraq versus Afghanistan. Hmm. So, 
of course, my, my experiences in fifth group were very different than in the 160th and then very different when I was in JSOC. So the mission set for me, I think it was harder in Afghanistan, all told, because so much of the war in Afghanistan was actually in Pakistan, where we weren't allowed to operate a whole bunch. And right. with the Kani network in particular being propped up by ISI, it, it made for a very difficult mission set. There are a lot of very capable fighters in Afghanistan and in Iraq, too, but especially in Afghanistan. That's what they lived to do. So they got pretty good at it, and it was hard chasing those folks around the battlefield. They were very intermeshed within the civilian communities, and it was hard to root them out. And I think we saw with the way things ended in Afghanistan that that we were never wholly successful in that. Yeah. Um, at what point in your deployment cycle, and again, I, I know it's hard. Again, we're, we're talking 27 years. You have seven deployments, and most of them back-to-back for the most part, but – is there a point in your deployment cycle where you're starting to look at the work that you're doing and you wonder if it's actually, I mean, I know in the short term it has an effect, but in the long term, it's like, how many more of these bad guys can we get before we actually call this thing quits? I mean, you know, you keep sort of chasing your own tail. Is there a mental toll that this is starting to take on you that you're aware of? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Mark, because that kind of, that's a great segue into what happened after SOF. So, like I said, I had very safe deployments. I, I never got hit. I, I never got any uh, Purple Hearts, no medals for valor because I didn't deserve any because none of that happened to me when I was over there. But I did have the opportunity to be involved in some very strategic level discussions, to be a fly on the wall, to be to give input to and things like that. And I think it was my second deployment to Iraq where I started coming to the realization that we're not going to be allowed to do the things it's going to take to win. And I understand that wars are inherently political, and I'm here to support this political end state. But around me, I'm seeing people getting blown up. I'm seeing countries getting destroyed. I'm seeing millions, billions, trillions of dollars getting thrown down a hole with with no end in sight. And I don't see a way to win what to accomplish what we said we're there to do. So that's when I started to look for something else. And I remember when I was in fifth group, I had a soldier who had a brother who was a cadet at West Point. And my company commander at the time took us on, basically it was a boondoggle to go see West Point. None of us had ever been there. And I was like, wow, this place is amazing. And and you could teach here. I don't know who I thought taught at West Point, but I didn't realize it could be me. And then when I was in Iraq, I, I, so this is my, my thing, my second time in Iraq. So fifth or sixth deployment overall. What, what year is this, by the way? This is probably 2008. So, okay. I, you know, the surge is going on as things aren't going well. Um, we're getting thumped pretty bad, and we're killing people every night. Guys are going on the objective, sometimes two, three missions back to back. They're bringing all the – we're saying, hey, go get this guy and bringing him and his, his little friends and all their stuff back here. They're doing that, but it's not having the effect that we want. And that's when I start thinking. I was like, what What could I do? It's was like, well, as an intel guy, even if even if I get to the highest ranks – of the intel profession, I'm not going to command a division. I'm not going to be a core commander. I'm not going to do any of these other things. Where can I have the most influence? And I decided that the, the best way to prevent this type of thing from happening in the future is to go teach at West Point. And that's what started me down that road. Interesting. I mean, to play devil's advocate here, mm-hmm. that is the long of longest plays ever. Like, if I'm going to change... The way we fight, I'm going to take people who aren't even commissioned yet, change their way of thinking in the hopes that when they last 25 to 30 years in their career and they're wearing stars in the middle of their chest as rank, that, uh, yeah, eventually we'll get to the end state. Uh, 
No, no instant gratification in that path there, Charlie. No, but being a, a strategic intel guy, that's kind of that's kind of my mindset. I think it was B.H. Liddell Hart that said the hardest thing, the only thing harder to get a new idea into a military mind is to get an old idea out. And we were trying to fight some new ideas in Iraq and Afghanistan. Of course, we had coin and everything else going on. We had F3AD kicking off the the joint the the National Mission Force was doing some great things. They're really evolving. But it's, it's, it's a generational conflict. It's going to take a generational solution. So if you just look objectively at the people who command at the highest levels of the Army, they're disproportionately West Pointers. Just the way it is. Duh. So if, if you want to impact strategically in the long term, you have to start with cadets at West Point. I get it. Uh, I would also argue that, you know, Maybe they need to not be so myopic and insular and actually look outside of people who didn't go to West Point as valuable people actually have a brain that functions and everything else. But we can reserve that conversation for another. It was funny because it's it's weird. Um, It was – let me – let me get the name of the author. I, cause, just because I want to give him credit, because uh, uh, somebody else I know who covers the military affairs, uh, his name is Davis Winky. Uh, I just want to make sure whether it's Stripes or whoever else he writes for. But I'll get it here in a second as I'm looking it up. But he wrote a column about how West Point football players are more likely to make the rank of general than everybody else. And they're also likely to be appointed um, chief of staff. It was the Army Times. I'm sorry. It was in the Army Times um, that he wrote this column for. And his name is Davis Winky. He's uh, he's actually in the guard still. Uh, I've I've gotten a chance to know him a lot over the past couple of years. But it was it's that same sort of thing. It's like what, and I deal with this right now, right? As 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 far as trying to, you know, um, end up with a star one day as as an 06, you realize the only people who let you behind the velvet ropes are the people who are sitting behind the velvet ropes, right? And so right. they 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 can be very choosy in their own way for whatever reason. And, and is that good and bad? Yes. I mean, is there a fair argument to say those people know what it takes best to be in that club? Yes. But is there also there a fair argument to say that that sort of closes their mind off a little bit to what might not exactly look, fit, and feel the way they do, and still that those individuals can provide value behind those velvet ropes? Yeah, I think that's fair, too. I, I think there's a lot of room for discussion there. And as you and I discussed earlier, I didn't go to West Point. I did I did work there for going on eight years. I have a daughter who's down at, at Georgia Military College right now trying to get into West Point. And I hope she does get in because I think this is a great institution. But I think people can make a logical argument that academy shouldn't exist at all. I've seen those arguments. I think there's merit in that. I disagree, but I, I can see how people would think that. I, I would also say, just anecdotally from my own experience, the absolute best and absolute worst leaders I've had in the military have all, all been came West, from West Point. Yep. Every I, single I, one of them. I'll never forget. I, I the, the guy who I took over for when I was on active duty was a former West Point guy. And I looked at him and I literally asked him, how the fuck did you survive West Point? Like, honestly, dude, like you are dumber than me. Like, how did you even get in is the first question. So, you know, yeah, I mean – just like in medical school, somebody's got to get a C minus, right? I mean, there's a West Point cadet who absolutely sucks at being a West Point cadet, uh, and they're going to get a commission one way or another. And I don't say that as a pejorative; it's just you know, especially in the military, where we rack and stack and rank everything, right? Like someone's going to be first and someone's going to be last. That's just kind of the nature of the beast. Um, okay, so when you obviously when you pivot from you know this operational environment to West Point, am I correct in saying you're done with all your deployments? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So last one, I think I wrapped up uh, 2010. I was out and then just started uh, the into academia. I, I, I want to sort of 
you know, finish the deployment conversation because okay. I, I think it's important. You know, the operational pace with you operated at, the level yep. of what you were doing, the amount of stress and tension that you had on your job. Was there ever a moment where you sat there and you felt overwhelmed? No, but basically because there wasn't time for that, uh, especially. Well, I, it doesn't I mean it didn't happen. No, it, it, it didn't happen. I mean, there was so much going on all the time and there was pressure, especially my last deployment. I ran the temporary screening facility for the task force, which both uh, General Crystal and Admiral Craven identified as the center of gravity for the task force. So there's a lot of pressure on it for it. But being in those types of units, I felt like I was supported by my leadership. I felt like I had an important mission and I had a good supporting cast. So I never felt like like I would it was overwhelming personally. It was never not lost on me the the level of responsibility and impact that we could provide. But I never felt that I was overwhelmed, especially because my wife was also in JSOC. So I could talk to her over the classified networks and let her know what's going on and get support that way in a way that other folks couldn't. Yeah, well, that's so I felt yeah. Yeah, I felt supported. Certainly. I felt empowered and I just had a great experience, especially the last couple of deployments. Yeah, it's certainly a, a nice little benefit to have if you're fortunate enough to have it. Um, did you see it in any of the people who work for you? Did yes. you see anybody getting burned yes. out? Absolutely. And that was one of the, the benefits of the short deployments for the soft community. So in the, in the 160th, for example, we were doing four months, two months, because that's all the airframes could take it. So they had to rotate out the MH-47s, and they would rotate out crews, and they would also rotate out support guys, too. So they would take those 47s, take the masks off of them, push them in the back of a C-5. We'd crawl up underneath it and, and fly back and forth. You know, I, I wonder if anybody has ever done a study. Because now you, you say, that, like, that operational pace, two months back, four months back, two months back, three months back. Is that more detrimental than a year, two-year break? A year, two-year break, right? Which is what the Army active duty cycle was, in theory, for the most part. That's what they aim for, right? If you were an active duty unit, if you're a guard, it's five. But it was a year on, two years off, year on, two years off was your cycle. Um, which did more damage to people mentally and physically in the toll of the whole thing? Because, you know, I know this much. Eight months, nine months of a deployment, burned out. Burned it. Done. Like, I, at that point in time, I wanted to strangle everybody next to me, uh, which is why I reserved my leave for, like, past the eight-month mark because I just wanted a quick 90-day sprint downhill when I got back. Um, you know, that, and it was easier for me to tell all my Joes to take your leave first, I'll go last, right? And I knew I would right. plan it that way. But, you know, uh, that eight, nine-month window is where you really start to get levels of burned out that you're not really comprehending, you know? And, again, just like for me, you know, I'm in my mid-20s in my first deployment, and young and healthy. It got so bad at one point. Like, I was working literally 18 to 20-hour days. I never drank coffee. I was drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes, mm -hmm. like, on the regular, just because they mm -hmm. were there. And it was around. It was like I turned into my mother. My mo Every morning, my mother would get up, have her cigarette and her coffee. And I'm like, what the hell is going on in my life here? You know, but, like, it, it just, you don't realize. And, it, look, I'm not overstating. You know, I'm not trying to over-dramatize, you know, that sort of little thing compared to everything else that I went through. But, you know, it's just some of those things where you get to a point where you just need to start coping in ways that you're not – really equipped to do uh and you find whatever it does in that moment give you a little bit of, of relief absolutely right and that's that's a great question and probably worthy of its own podcast is a discussion i've often had with my wife because to the folks back home gone is gone and it doesn't matter and if you're going it's like hey i just got enough time dad got used to daddy 
being home and daddy's gotten used to the way mommy's doing things now. And then you're gone again. And two months later, you're gone again and you're gone for four months. You're gone for six months. You're gone for two months. Gone is gone, whether it's short or longer. I like the shorter ones because it was easier for me to say, okay, I just got to, I got to keep up this seven day a week, 16 hour day pace for four months. And then I get to come home. And also the, the benefit that I think in addition to me personally is a benefit to the mission because guys tended to be more engaged and care more because they knew they were coming right back. So when I was back in garrison, I stayed engaged with what was what's going on at the front because first of all, I'm interested in my mission. Second of all, I know I'm going to be back there in four months. So I care about it. And when I'm on the ground, I care about the long-term effects of what I'm doing versus the, the two months, six months, a year that I'm going to be there. I'll never be back. I don't care what happens next. And I think General McChrystal took that approach as well. When he took over in Afghanistan, one of the things he'd ask when he went out there is, what would you do differently if I told you that you had to stay here until it was done? And some of those answers were pretty interesting. For example? So, for example, lots of folks wanted to go into Pakistan because they knew that's, like I mentioned before, that's where their war was, down in Miram Shah, where the, the Taliban were congregating. We couldn't get after them regularly because... Pakistan is an ally, ostensible ally, and a sovereign nation. We couldn't go get them. And also, they would do more patrolling instead of just buttoning up on the bases and waiting out the clocks like, I don't want to get killed. I only got three more months. But but getting out there and being aggressive, because you and I both know that's the way you win. You don't win by buttoning up and buttoning up on a fob and conceding the initiative to the enemy. So it was a lot different for us, I think, because we knew we were going back. So it's like, okay. What can I do now that's going to make things better now and in the future? Because we're in this to win it until the end. What do we need to do different? All I'll say is that we'll air quote the term in reference to Pakistan, uh, ally. Sure. <laughs> if that's what you want to call it. Uh, more, right. more like, more as the kids say, more like frenemies, right? Uh, right. That's, that's, you know. Like I think the, the term is, is erstwhile. So they're, they're supposed to be our allies, but really, really weren't. Yeah. Um, that's interesting, too. Nobody ever asked me that question. I wish somebody had while I was there, when I was in Iraq, saying, what would you do differently knowing that we were here? And it's funny because I think we all would default to the same thing. Let's just go in there and flip and level them. Just go in yeah. there and just, I mean, just shock and awe, reap part two, and just go in there and level everything. Which, here's the difference. And I just had this conversation on a previous podcast with another guest. Um uh, his name is PJ Dermer, um, and he worked in you know high level, um, not only intelligence but you know high levels of of the military and government. But you know, strategic objectives and tactical objectives often fail to land in the same spot. Um, and while it's easy to turn around and say, "Run into Pakistan," or just go out there and level them, you know, let's just roll through the city, waste everything in our way. Tactically, yes, um, we're not going to lose. In that sense. And that's why everybody picks that because we're playing to our strengths, right? right. It's, it's, you know, in football terms, it, if you've got a great quarterback and a great wide receiver, don't hand the ball off to a five foot nine running back. Like it, it, it's it, play to your strengths. And that's what we would do. And that's how we would quote win. But the second and third order of effects of that and how it's perceived diplomatically, strategically across the world and everything else, you know, um, open up Pandora's box, which I suppose is why politicians get paid what they do and we get paid what we do. But uh, th- th- that that sort of conversation is just an enigma wrapped in a riddle, wrapped inside a, a puzzle. And, and uh, 
you know, it'll, it'll take you forever to get it unraveled. But yeah, I, I, that's, it's an interesting question to say the least. What we, I wonder what they did with that information. I'm genuinely curious how they processed it. Uh, yeah, in, the and think, the, in, in the think tank and group think of, of big army. And that was something that was on my mind. Also, I, I knew that I was biased looking at the situation. It's very easy for me to say, well, the, the war in Iraq is actually in Iran. Let's go do something about it. The war in, in Afghanistan is actually in Pakistan. Let's go do something about that because I'm not responsible for that. I'm responsible for what's happening in, in my little AL. Your sphere and of I gotta, influence, right? Yep. Yep. My little soda straw that I'm, I'm looking at instead of looking at the big picture. But even when we were in Iraq in the early years, it was obvious to even me as a captain and a major that we made two strategic blunders right off the bat in Iraq. We disbanded the Iraqi army, which was basically the only thing that was forcing all the major ethnic groups to work together. And we, we under, underwent a, a policy of debathification. So anyone who knew how to run the government, keep the, the sewer pipe flowing and the lights on was suddenly out of a job. And what yeah. we didn't do was take away their Rolodex and organization. So now they have this ready bit built in surgery insurgency that we've been fighting ever since. And foreign internal defense, but you know, yes. I'd go on and on <laughs> about hearts and minds until, uh, there were no hearts and there were no minds left. So there is well, that. Debathication was, was specifically baffling to me. I mentioned to you that my family is from Huntsville, Alabama and the, the civic center there is literally named after Werner von Braun, who was a Nazi. And that we, our country has a, a long history of taking folks that, that weren't the greatest and using them to our strategic advantage. I don't understand why we didn't try to do that in Iraq, where, where it really could have made a difference. Yeah, well, there's, instead of disbanding the Ba'ath Party, uh, flip them and use them to your advantage to control and leverage. But, again, it's, uh, that's where tactical and strategic objectives don't meet. Because the only way you were going to invade Iraq was to hit the Ba'ath Party first. Right, you weren't you weren't going to destabilize it and take out Saddam without taking out all the henchmen in the Bath Party first. And so, how do you get those people on your side? Again, the long game versus the short game, right? Right. Um, it's, and I think it's, it could be a question of degrees. Maybe if you think about that that deck of cards, the wanted posters that you and I had yep. when we were in the early days of Iraq. Maybe we lop off everyone who's a face card, and maybe the Deuce of Clubs gets to stick around because he knows how to run a city. And I, I think that, that that could have been a, a, a better effect. Yeah, you got the irreconcilables that you got to put in prison or kill. Um, but you got other folks that just want to live their lives. And those are the folks that, that that malleable middle was really what we needed to hit hard. And I don't think we did that very well. Yeah, well, um, remember how you talked before about not making an emotional decision when you wanted to get out? Uh, we were in an emotional time at that point in time. We weren't ready to make long-term rational decisions uh we wanted what we wanted and we went after it so hindsight being 2020 we all have the the ability to say this now and and look i I say this fully i would there's i don't know enough to know one way or another but knowing what i do know i wouldn't i don't disapprove of the invasion of iraq knowing what i that's only my my aperture right like we just talked about your straw you know like that's what i see from what what i know and what was my experience um, that said, you know, doesn't mean it couldn't have been done differently. We digress yeah. different podcast, different day. Uh, <laughs> so you get, you get to West point, you know, when you get there and you want to start downloading all this knowledge, um, to these kids, you know, there's a sense of, um, wondering how much it actually is going to stick, right? Like how much you're actually going to be able to change things. Um, when you get there, what is your thought process as far as, 
you know, just what you're going to say to the kids. What's the, I mean, I'm sure you had in the back of your mind overall, like, I really want to get this through to them. What, what, what did that feel? What was your mission statement, if you will? Critical thinking, because I think that was the, the big thing that was lacking and planning down the road. We call it, you know, second or third order effects, whatever consequences was some of the big things that I really wanted to focus on here with the, with the cadets. And I was actually pleasantly surprised by the level of intellect and thoughtfulness that the cadets demonstrated here. When I was in grad school, I I was a student teacher for a little while. So I, I understand what students their age at elite schools are thinking and acting. And I thought the cadets here, for the most part, were very much in line with their peers in, in other elite institutions. But one of the, the strengths of West Point is about 30% of the faculty are civilians, never spend a day in the military in their lives, but they have a deep, deep understanding of whatever their field is, if that's American politics or physics or whatever. So they're really able to hammer home the theory and the overall academia of it. And what we do as the rotating faculty are able to come in and give them the practitioner standpoint of it. So I got hired to teach international relations. That's what I went to grad school for. I taught in the Department of Social Sciences. So I was able to explain to them, hey, as a lieutenant, this is what you need to know and what you need to be able to explain to your troops and you're dealing with the local tribal shake and everything like that. That's why all this matters. You understand how people think. You understand how governments think. If you understand how people and governments think, then you can use that to pursue U.S. national interests. And I like to think that it stuck with some of them. And down the road, I hope to, to get some more messages from them saying, hey, remember when we talked about this in class? Well, here's how I'm using it out in the force. And I get those from time to time now. And it's very rewarding to, to know that I, I made that small contribution. You know, if someone in college would have talked to me about international diplomatic relations, I just sort of went, what? <laughs> what? Really? Like, what are you talking about? Like. You know, it's one of those things. I was a little late on the come on that one. Um, but then again, you know, I was thrown into the fire in a deployment and had to just kind of figure it out as I went along. But did, did you ever get those blank stares from some of those young cadets going, what the hell is he talking about? Absolutely. So the, the course I taught initially was the intro course, International Relations. And just like you said, when they walk in, they don't want to be there. A lot of them don't. It's a core class. I, uh, West Point's a heavy engineering school, so they, they have that mindset. Is it really? And, oh, yeah. Yeah, everyone here has to take an engineering track. West Point was founded as a school for engineers. I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah. I wow. think if if memory serves, the most popular major at West Point is mechanical engineering. Do they all want to be? They all want to branch engineer because I thought they all wanted to branch infantry or armor. Well, there's only so many. There's only so many. Yeah, I know, but I'm like, you know, is 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 it the most competitive branch? I I thought it was aviation, infantry, or armor was kind of like the top a- three that people want. I think we just had we just had branch night a couple of days ago, which was okay. an amazing experience at West Point. I'm pretty sure the most competitive is aviation, followed by infantry or engineers, and then military intelligence. So I think MI is number four, and infantry and engineers are battling out for second and third. I'm not sure about that, but that, that's kind of what I recall from previous years. Uh, nobody wants to be a logistics puke. Nobody ever <laughs> wants to be that guy. Well, there, there are plenty of them, and there's some, some great ones. Um, I, I'm thinking uh, Chris, Chris Simone is my friend from 5th Group and 160th, great logistician. Although now I think about it, he didn't go to West Point, so maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe uh, all the, the best loggies and ordnance folks come from RTC. Right. Well, you want to know why? Because, you know, we actually had to live like a life where we had to find things on our own and figure it out. And no one was going to, you know, tell us which direction to pee in. So, uh, yeah, th- there is that. Uh, I, 
I love my logistics background. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it. I, uh, you know, uh, and, and I, I always default back to my experience in my first deployment as far as, you know, my, like the, the most successful logistics part of my career, uh, with battalion command being behind it. Um, but you know, when you know how to get stuff and you know how to get stuff done, uh, and, and, you know, they knock on your door and, uh, a green beret says, you know, who's much lower in rank than I am. So say, hey, Mark, I need you to go get me something. And I'm like, what do you need, Chris? And he goes, I need five, five, six round. I need about, you know, 60,000 rounds of it for training this, that, and the other. Okay. And then you walk back and a day later you show up with 60,000 rounds of five, five, six. And those guys go, awesome. Thank you. You know? <laughs> um, and it's just, you know, that, that it's, it's stuff like that, that, in the specialized community, I say it all the time, you know, the only way you know you're being successful is when they give you more work. Right. Because they, they, they don't have time to waste on you if you can't execute what they need you to do. So that's, that's a brilliant point. When, when, and especially in the soft community, if you're a support guy and they stop asking you for things, you really need to reflect because that means yep. they're doing your job and yep. they don't need you anymore. So maybe it's time for you to go do something else. It's, it's the only way I garnered trust and respect from any of them. Um, and I, I've shared this story too. By the end of my deployment, um, the battalion commander for the SF offered me a slot to go to assessment and selection. That's amazing. It was one of the most, one of the most, um, amazing things he ever, has ever happened to me. And I, uh, and I remember his name it was great. Colonel Swindell was the guy from, uh, from 10th group who offered it to me and I respectfully declined it. Um, I thought it was great. I just, I knew what it take to do it, especially in the guard world where I was at that point in time, what, what the commitment it required. And I just, I, I, I wanted to do different things with my life. Um, but it was probably one of the one of the best moments of my career when he offered me and said, "If you want to go, I'll, I'll get you in." And I said, "Sir, I'll think about it." But you know, I appreciate it, and, and that was about it. And that was the end of the conversation because um, he knew if I wanted, I would have walked back to his office and told him. He didn't have to ask twice. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's when, when you when you get to that level in that community, um, you understand. I hate to say this because it sounds like such a pejorative, but you understand what real work looks like. Yeah. Right. Like you understand to the level of, of how to operate at the highest levels and, and what's required. And, you know, I put my head on the pillow at night knowing that I was able to at least for a small window of, of 12 plus months, hack it in that environment uh, where, where people trusted and respected me. So there is that. Um, but back to West Point, because, you know, again, um, you, you see these these young men and women who mm-hmm. um, enter into this, knowing that they're going into a life of service and a life of leadership. That to me, so like if you ever gave me a job at West Point, I would teach leadership first more than mm-hmm. anything else, um, and and understanding how to do it now, especially in the military that we're in now, is different than the one I grew up in. Again, you know, I, I've said this before. I, I physically saw wall to wall counseling from my platoon sergeant to a a an E five who couldn't hack it. Um, we don't do that anymore. Right. I'm not endorsing that we should or condoning that we did. I'm just saying it's a different world now. Um, and leaders have to understand the challenges that they're up against. When you look at these young cadets and you see them, obviously you could see the differences between them and us. I think some of those things are paramount. Uh, just based off of the way they grew up with the internet and thing, things at their disposal and everything else. But like when you look at them, do you see more leadership challenges or different leadership challenges? They're just different. And I'm sure when you and I came in, the people that were where we, you and I are now thought about us in largely the same ways. So I, I think it's, it's become uh, conventional to complain about the, this generation. And there are some challenges in it with the digital connection, the TikTok generation, whatever. There are challenges with it, but there were challenges with us as well. 
And I don't think the challenges we have with these young leaders are insurmountable. So after I, I taught in the Department of Social Sciences for three years, I went over to the Simon Center and I headed up the superintendent's capstone program. It's called MX400. It's the officership capstone. And that was the most rewarding job I've had in the Army my entire 27 plus years because I thought that's where I could really make the most difference. So every cadet at West Point had to take MX400. I was a course director for it. So I felt I was putting my stamp in a very small way on everyone who commissioned out of West Point in those two years. So I think that for the most part, they get it together at the end. And while most West Pointers or a majority of them get out after their five years of service, as we talked about before, so many more of them go on to the highest levels of the military. And is there causation there because they went to West Point or is that just correlation? Is it the power of the, the ring knocking network to speak pejoratively about it? Or are these people just that much better because of their West Point experience? I don't know, but I do know that the opportunities and resources West Point has here is far better than I experienced in my ROTC program. The leadership is better than I experienced in ROTC. I had some good leaders in ROTC, but I've got great ones here at West Point because it's so competitive. So overall, I think the product they produce is pretty good. There's constant room for improvement, and I'm not trying to just sit here and be a cheerleader for it, but I wouldn't have stuck at West Point for so long if I didn't think that they had something good here that I couldn't contribute to in a way at any other place. So I think they do okay. Without getting into a uh, philosophical debate here, um, because this generation is different, um, what is the hardest part about getting a digital youth uh, inclusive generation to think critically on their own? So just to get them to think that everything is not black and white, especially living at West Point where you got the honor code and everything like that, everything is, is kind of good or bad. And there's so much that they see as being bad inherently that is, it is not. So I think there's a lot of trying to see both sides as being wrong in a situation where sometimes there is a, a clear right or wrong and just trying to, to consider more than one source of information. I think people in general, not just this generation, tend to believe and hold fast to whatever they read first. It's a problem. So they read this first, and, that, and that's their opinion on it. They're not willing to go with the other sources. They're not willing to put themselves in other perspectives to look at a problem the, from a different way. And one of the ways that I got after that in the classroom, and this wasn't something I came up with, I was taught to teach this way, I think it's useful, is I would make cadets argue a point of view that I knew they didn't hold in order to understand that point of view better. Like, all right, convincingly, I want you to argue why cadets, this group of cadets, I want you to explain to me why Pakistan is supporting the, the Haqqani network and why that's good for Pakistan. And why why they should continue to do that. They don't agree with that. They don't think they should continue to do that. They think that our kind of network is bad and, and Pakistan should, should and support for it. But understand why that exists and then make an informed decision about it instead of just blindly accepting everything right. you're told. Well, you say that and I chuckle just because um, – and this is one of the things I learned in the soft community. Um, you have a plan, right? You come up with a plan and everything else uh, in, in the way you do things. And one of the things I learned is, well, if you do A, how does the enemy react? Mm -hmm. Right? Is my plan sound? The first question you ask is, what is the counter to my plan? Right? Um, and, and I do this a lot in 
some of the stuff I do in the side in the civilian world, you know, when, when, uh, and, and to use a, a gambling analogy or, or a sports gambling, you know, when you're looking at one side of why a team would win a game, look at the flip side on the ways that they could lose the game and understand both of those and weigh them out is essentially, you know, what you're challenged in doing. And I can even make it more succinctly because this was me throughout my entire career. Ask the question, why? Right? Well, we're going to do this this way. Why? Because inherently, and theoretically it's supposed to, your operations order should detail out. It details out the who, what, where, when. So often, the why gets passed over in an operations order. But in reality, that should be there because that is, is what exactly, why the operation will be successful. We get focused on the who, what, when, and where. But we forget the, and the how, because that's the execution. We leave out the why a lot of the times, and that's, to me, where that debate starts, right? That, well, to me, is where, where, where we start to, to troubleshoot and problem shoot and put holes in any plan and go, why are we doing this this way? Absolutely. I think that stems from the very beginning with commander's intent. If you give that to them, especially in a high-performing unit, if you only give them the commander's intent, this is the effect I want to achieve or this is the thing I want done, largely they can figure out the rest. Now it helps them if you give them more information on it. Right. But if you start with that, why? And I think someone wrote a book called that start with why I think it's a business book. If you, if you tell them why, and with this generation, you're going to have to do that because they're going to ask and they're not going to function well if you don't tell and people get annoyed about it. But I think if you provide that upfront, I think you tend to get a better product at the end. This is why we're doing this. Here's my intent. And if you satisfy those whys up to a certain point, then I think that what you get, get at the end product is something better than you would have done if you just told them, gave them the bare minimum and refused to, to allow them to ask that question. I do it with my staff repeatedly, and I say it repeatedly to them. This is what I believe. I want you to find a way to make it better. I want you to find a way to make my plan the shit plan and your plan the great plan, right? And I'm all ears, but you're going to have to win me over. And you're, I tell them, you're going to have to convince me. Like, you better come ready and armed to, to, to win the argument with me as to why you have a better, more secure way. And I expect them of it because I tell them I don't want automatons. I, I don't want robots. I don't want, you know, people who just nod north and south. Speak. And I have to remind everybody in a meeting, speak. Tell me what is on your mind right now. Because we get into this world where they just nod because there's a field grade or an 05 or an 06 in the room. And you just nod and say yes. And throughout my entire career, and it's got me in trouble more often than not, I'm the one who goes, why? That's stupid. That doesn't make any sense to me. Can we have a conversation about this before we, you know, just run right out the door and just do whatever you said? Um, and people don't like to hear that because it's ego, right? Like, no one wants to be told they're dumb. Uh, I, I routinely have found out that I'm dumb, and, and I put a lot of smart people around me. It's the smartest thing I do. And so they, that allow, it affords me a lot more ability for success because I'm willing to listen to other ideas. So, I, I think that's a big part of it. But, yeah, I, and that's the other part I, I worry about, you know, particularly I think at West Point more than other, you know, commissioning sources. Um, they're so ingrained in the way they do things. And this is a total outside perspective that, you know, it's the yes, sir, yes, ma'am, no, sir, no, ma'am mentality and just drive forward without asking a lot of questions that I think is inbred in them from the very beginning. Um, from the time that they're freshmen and ple- plebes, is that what they are? Plebes, plebes yeah. Right? yeah. Mm-hmm. From the time that they're plebes on to the time that they're MS4s and, and uh, you know, they're getting ready to get commissioned, they're sort of brought up a certain way not to do the why thing. 
I think that could be a problem. And I see that with the plebes, but by the time they become seniors or firsties, I think that they, they inherently understand the importance of the why. And a okay. lot of times in units, like you don't want plebes asking why a whole bunch. Why, 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 why? They'll why you to death. Sometimes you just need them to execute because the why will become clearer over time. And I remember thinking when, when I was a young officer, there were things that I didn't like that were being done that when, hey, when I'm a company commander, we're not going to do X, Y, Z. But when I get in that position, I kind of understand why we had to do it that way. And a classic example is PT first thing in the morning. I don't like getting up first thing in the morning. And the, the first thing I do is go out and run 10 miles or whatever. I don't like that. But when else are we going to do it? If we understand that PT is important and it's necessary, when are we going to fit it in the schedule? And it's a part of a maturing process over time of understanding why things exist the way they are. So by the time they get to be firsties, I think they kind of they got, kind of got that under control, especially if they understand and embrace mission command, which I know a lot of people don't like in the, in the active force. I think it's a great philosophy for leadership and leading in the army. I think it's easy to understand. I think it's easy to follow. And if you adhere to it, then there's no end of things you can do with disciplined initiative being an inherent part of the process, yeah, it's, which is something that you and I were exposed to in the soft community. It's such a delicate balance, right? Because the discipline and the ability to follow orders and execute is so important to our survival, literally in combat. You know, it's somebody going, hey, fire in this direction, look over here and do this. Like that could save people's lives, which is why we put people in charge. And then there's, you know, the other part of the other side of the coin is why, why do you want me to fire in that direction? Well, because, you know, there's not a lot of time to explain it. We can figure it out later. But, uh, and all that still is wrapped in leadership, right? When, when yep. the right leader says fire in this way, no one asks questions. Point fire. We'll worry about the why later on. I'll have a conversation about it. And that, that ultimately is, uh, you know, a, a key component of, of leadership and, and getting people to trust you in that manner. Um, so you end up with uh, five total degrees. The last one coming from Yale. So you went from yeah. Georgia Military College to Yale. It's a that, big arc. It, it, well, it's really interesting, Mark. The only reason I went to college at all is because my father told me that the only way I could be an officer like him yep. was, to, was to go to college. Now, mm -hmm. that's literally true because he did ROTC so to be an officer like him of course I had to go to college but not actually completely true like I could have enlisted and gone to OCS etc so that's the only reason I went to college I did okay in high school uh, I, but I'm lazy especially academically and I didn't want to go to college I wanted to be in the army jump out of airplanes and and do sp special things and stuff like that so I went to Georgia Military College I don't remember if I didn't get into West Point or if I applied in if I, uh, decided, I knew I wouldn't get in, so I didn't apply. But my plan was to go to GMC for a year and then go to West Point. But after getting the crap haze out of me at GMC for a year and finding out I'd have to start over, because when you go to West Point from another school, you start over from the bottom. You don't transfer in as a, as a sophomore or junior. Like, no, I'll just finish up here and, and move on. So I, I went to GMC. Then I transferred to Mercer after graduating from GMC. And it took me five years to get my four-year degree because I parted my way through college. I was in ATO fraternity. They had girls at Mercer, et cetera, et cetera. And I never thought I'd go back to school again. But again, part of the maturing process you and I talked about was after being in the Army for a while, it's like, you know, it, it would help me be a better officer if I, if I learned a little bit more. So I got picked up to teach at West Point, which was very, also very interesting, Mark, because I got turned down three or four years in a row. To, to go teach and wow. that was it i know i was like how could you not love this how could you not want me west point but i wasn't what they were looking for at the time and i i got in 
And I got in the program and I wanted to go to the University of Alabama for my master's degree. And West Point was like, well, that's a great school, but it doesn't have a great IR program, international relations program. So we want you to consider these schools on the list. And most of them were schools that I never thought I had a chance to go to and being from Alabama would never go to. And the only reason I applied to Yale was kind of a joke because Jeremy McChrystal was teaching there. And I kind of figured, well, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me to apply. And no one was more surprised than me that I actually got in. And that's that's how I ended up there. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> so you have all these degrees now. Uh, and, uh, you know, you're, you're smarter than you could have ever imagined. Um, at what point in time do you start to get involved in some of these other ventures uh, in your career, the Havoc Journal uh, and, and everything else, Second Mission Foundation. Like, you know, I mean, I, I, you, like you just said, back in November, you retired. So obviously some of this stuff is being worked while you're still in uniform. Right, right. So I got involved in Havoc. Like I said, Marty started Havoc Journal around t- 2013. And I'd met Marty. We were members of a special operations themed bulletin board called Shadow Spear. We were both members there. And then when I was in grad school, I asked him to come sit on a panel for a conference that I was running because I identified that there was a problem at Yale with civil military relations. Most of the people in my class, all of them great people, had never met anyone in the military before. That was mind-blowing for me. Wow. Like We've been at war for 13 years and you've never met anyone in the military. At the same time, I'd never met anyone that served in the Peace Corps in Kenya. So I was like, hey, and much like the conversation we had, Mark, about the West Pointers dominating the highest ranks of the U.S. Army, if you just look objectively at the people who go on to run our country, and I'm talking presidents, um, Supreme Court justices, leaders of industry, they all go to a very few number of schools, and one of them is Yale. So I would tell my Yale classmates, undergrads, that people like me grow up to work for people like them. And they thought I was joking because it's unfathomable to them as a 20-year-old that some 40-year-old is going to be working for them one day. But to me, I saw it as an investment in my own self-interest to get these folks to understand how we operate before they're making the types of decisions that drive us into wars like the ones we I just experienced in Iraq and Afghanistan. So Marty came in. I met him. On, he sat on the panel. He started Havoc. He asked me to get involved, and that's how I got my foot in the door. Now you own it. Um, now, now I own it. And what was interesting, Mark, was to, to own it legitimately in the military. You know this. that You have to have a – you have to permission yep. to have outside employment. And I kind of held my breath going through the process here at West Point, but it was actually super quick, and I did it legitimately. The three-star General Kaslan at the time signed off for it. And by doing it that way, it really paid dividends later on because I could I, – I was operating this, this side business legitimately – and not trying to have to hide it. And that was a good feeling and also just the right thing to do as an army officer. No, a hundred percent. Um, so when it first started to what it is now, how has it changed? I mean, was it always supposed to be about people sharing their stories, their most intimate feelings on combat and how they survived it and what it's done to them? So absolutely. That's when, when that was Marty's vision when he, when he started it, but the way it has evolved over time is, there's only so many times people can read uh, a story about um, combat and loss and things like that. I think the veterans need to have a wider interest than just that. So that's always going to be the core of Havoc Journal. But our publishing criteria is anything that's going to be of interest to the veteran community. So if it could be about a spouse, it could be 
politics. It could be the latest cool gadget. If it's going to be interesting to the the veteran community, then we're going to publish it. And one of the things that makes us unique is we try to take a non-parochial approach to publication. So we all have our individual politics. We try to keep politics out of it. But if someone writes something that's from the left, we'll publish it. From the right, we'll publish it. Libertarian, we'll publish it. doesn't matter. As long as it's of interest, it's well-written, and it's truthful, we'll publish it. And that's caused problems for us over the years. People on the left think we're too right. People on the right think we're too left. But I think that that's, that's kind of a measure of what the veteran community is, and we're here to, to serve the entire veteran community, not just the ones whose political views we agree with. Yeah, um, I'm curious to know what you think and feel about how the military has been politicized in the last 24 months. Uh, that's one of the, the, the things that drove me to retire when I did. I, as an 05, I could do another year, 28 years to mandatory. But I've seen the evolution, not just the last two years, but a steady stream in a way that, that I, the Army going in a way that I, I don't think I could support from the inside being an officer anymore. And especially for me, the last straw was the way Afghanistan ended. And seeing that and just the, the way that everything that we did kind of just got tossed away in Iraq and Afghanistan and the effects that are going to happen in the long run to our country and to our military because of that. That was a final straw for me, and that's what caused me to drop my paperwork. And it's a long process to get out of the military. I didn't want to leave my unit hanging in terms of teaching responsibilities, so I stuck around for a little while longer. But, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's going well right now, but I think there is an ability and a window there to get back on track, and I think we're probably going to be heading the right direction soon. While you, you – since you brought it up, um, the ending of Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh Initial thoughts, what would you have done different? How uh, could this have ended in a better way? So you mentioned before the benefit of hindsight. Of course, I, the last time I was in Afghanistan was probably 2010, so it was it was 10 years on. But I think conce- just letting it fall apart the way it did, as, as publicly as it did, I think it really strengthened our enemies in Afghanistan and beyond and also weakened our government. A lot of folks in the Army – uh, feel the same way that that I do. They're they're very disappointed in the way that the political decision was to end it. And I think we're seeing that now in the recruiting situation, with recruiting being so low right now. And just another way of of vets thinking is like, why why even do this? Why why are we in it? I think we all knew Afghanistan had to end, and anyone who worked with the Afghan army knew that it probably wouldn't end well, but it could have ended a lot better than it did. So I would like to see some hearings and some accountability for this. We're, we're a year plus on, and I can't think of anyone who was a decision maker in that whole process who has been held accountable in any meaningful way. And maybe what? it had to end the way that it did, and there was no way around it, but I don't think that's the case. What I am most disappointed in, in the ending, um, well, what I'm most disappointed in is the loss of the 13 American lives. That That yeah. is what I'm most disappointed in. What I'm second most disappointed in is the inability of people in uniform to convince those out of uniform about the execution of the withdrawal. I don't necessarily disagree with the idea of getting out. That's not the issue. The issue is, is how we did it and the execution of it. And the fact that we had many of the right people in the right positions, including, and not that I've ever met General Miller, but including all the way up to him, that at some point in time, Somebody's got to get in the room 
with all the suits and say, stop, you cannot do this. And if you do do it, I will out you and be willing to end my career because I categorically disagree with what is going on. And it's bothersome that nobody had the guts to do that, right? Like, I get it on one hand, you're appointed to these positions, you're still in uniform, you work for the president, we don't disobey orders, we don't openly undercut our commander-in-chief, we don't openly undercut those who are above us. But that's what it would have required, that level of guts, gumption, courage to be able to turn around and say, if you go down this road and you fail like I'm telling you you will, I will end my career over it and out you to everybody. Because that's what you owe the people you put in harm's way. Lee Van Arsdale, okay, in Black Hawk Down said the same thing. As the you owe it as the decision maker to have the same amount of courage of those you send to go die. And it is that simple. And they did not show that same amount of courage. They showed they showed a whole bunch of words I don't want to say. Um, they, they showed a lot of poor decision-making in the execution of it, uh, and it ultimately led to losing 13 lives. Now, I would argue, had we not lost those lives, if that doesn't happen and we get out of there, despite the scenes of Afghans clinging on to planes and falling, I think we would tolerate that a lot more. I, I think we would have a different spin on this had we got out with every American getting out alive. Um, that is is really the hiccup. And and it's as simple as to draw a line between the two. Nobody dies. We'll live with it and we move on. We say for the most part, eh, it's okay. You know, 13 Americans die in this because you hastily tried to run out the door. Unforgivable. Absolutely. It was a debacle from start to finish in – I don't know what goes on in the decision-making at those levels. I like to think that if I were in charge and we had a failure that big, I would have to quit regardless of what I, I told yep. anybody yep. else. It's like, hey, at the end of the day, I, I'm I, I, here, I'm in this position, and we failed, and I don't think I, I deserve to have there, this position anymore. There are too many smart tactical people because at the end of the day, this wasn't a strategic operation. It was a tactical one. And there are way too many people with way too much experience tactically who have had many tactical successes militarily in their career in combat and otherwise for that to have gone down that way and nobody went, that's my bad. Yeah. Like that, it's, that's, and, and I know it sounds like anger to people watching and listening. It's just disappointment. It's just disappointment. And it's disappointing that we're still at a stage of military careers where no one can turn around and say, that's my fault, and I accept responsibility for it. Yeah. I don't know that we ever had a, a culture of that. It happens at some levels, normally at the lower levels. Yeah. But rarely does it happen at the upper levels. And folks in, in general officer ranks get fired all the time for various things. Some things totally deserve, <laughs> some things uh, undeserved. Some things are, and- are a complete joke what we fire generals over. Yeah. Yeah. But and nobody got fired over this. And that's no, no one. And at the end of the day, it's a political decision. I'm sure militarily we, we would stay there forever. But at, no one got held accountable on the political side either, as far as I can tell. Well, Somebody made a decision that was bad and there needs to be an accounting for it. This is a strategic defeat for America. This wasn't just, oh, you know, we wanted to win, we, but we took our ball and went home. This is going to have long-term negative consequences for our entire country, and someone needs to be held accountable. Yeah, tough. Very, very tough. Um, 
Just a couple more things here on Havoc Journal. Yeah. Again, if you go to HavocJournal.com, H-A-V-O-K Journal.com, you'll see the wide variety of, of columns that you're talking about and, and different things that you guys discuss. And, you know, it, it's great. Again, and uh, I'll remind everybody about, you know, following you guys on Instagram. Um, it's worth it. Just the vignettes and the stories are are so gripping um, emotionally that uh, you, you'll, you'll want to stay and read and read all of it. Um, that said, you, you are still now tied to – to many other different things. You're a contractor with SOCOM's Joint Special Operations University. What are you doing with that? Yeah, so I'm researching. I'm a contract researcher for JSAL now. They've asked me to take a look at, at an unclassified look at the Greater Northern Triangle region of Central and South America. And I've, I've put together a team of former military, a lot of soft experience, as well as some undergrad researchers at the University of South Florida and Yale and at West Point to, to make an academic study project for that, that's going to benefit Southcom. That's been a very interesting product, a project to work on. And of course, at, at West Point, I'm still, they let me stay on as the chair for the study of special operations. And I appreciate that, being able to maintain that connection and con- continue to make a contribution to West Point, the Army through that. So that's keeping me pretty busy between that and Havoc Journal and the Second Mission Foundation, which you mentioned earlier. Yeah, let's talk um, about those guys. Okay. So Second Mission, I, I started Second Mission as a nonprofit, 51 c 3 to help mem- members of the, the military, first responder community, and security contractors find their second mission after service. So long before I made a decision to retire, I noticed a lot of my friends were getting out, but they were kind of floundering on the outside. They didn't have a sense of purpose. So what Second Mission is doing is providing micro grants and other support to individuals to start businesses. We've published books. we got the third one that's getting ready to go out the door here in a couple months to help vets find whatever their second mission is going to be after they get out of the military. And that's been particularly rewarding, helping folks become highly functional veterans instead of becoming part of the, the problem that I see of the growing dysfunctional vet subcommunity with, within the United States. And uh, that is online at secondmissionfoundation.org. Uh, uh, if yep. you want to ch- check it out there as well. Um, it's, you know, it's, uh, it, it's incredible how much, uh, time, energy, and focus we spend on, um, in the nonprofit world on fixing veterans after they're, they're out of the service. Um, part of the problem is, is that, uh, this should be something that is done before you transition out, uh, before you, you, you need to start getting some of these tools in your toolkit before you leave. We're so quick to say, thank you for your service and sayonara, um, and, you know, backfill that assignment with somebody else coming in. Uh, that we don't do a good enough job at, at making sure that we're giving people the right care before they leave. And that, that again, is still, you know, there's a certain argument to say everybody should be in a warrior transition unit for a year before before they officially get discharged. Absolutely. I think that, that could make a great argument. I think this goes back to one of the reasons I think what you're doing with Hazard Ground is so important is letting vets tell their story and your audience is way bigger than just the veteran community. I mean, I, I talked to all kinds of people that listen to Hazard Ground, which is one of the reasons I was so excited you wanted, to be, wanted me to be on the show. So letting vets tell their story is a huge part of it, but also giving them a sense of purpose, which shows like this do. So someone's going to listen to your, your podcast and, and they're going to say, oh, I can do this now because it reinforces something that I've been thinking about for a long time, or I never thought of that before. So I think that's part of the, the positive synergy that all these different types of things do is to create conditions where people can see veterans as not broken as functional members of society and vets can see themselves in the same light. Yeah. And again, I think it's, 
genuinely, I just wanted to tell good stories because I thought they were interesting to hear. You know, like when I started getting into podcasts, I'm like, wow, I just, I just like hearing people tell me about their story. And, uh, you know, if, if you're having a good conversation about it, it's certainly worthwhile. Um, but you start to realize when we peel back the layers of all this thing, that, that so many things that all of us are dealing with. And, hell, I don't get to where I am in my own personal journey about the stuff that I'm dealing with without this podcast because I've heard so many other people tell it and have the cur- cur- you know courage to share what they were thinking and feeling that, you know, it would have been disingenuous of me to not do the same. Um, you know, and while I, I don't share my intimate details with, with everybody here on the show, uh, I am thankful to all the guests who come on and who are willing to do so because, again, what we find, Charlie, more than anything, is that eventually we get a note, you know, an email or, or a, a post or a, a, an Apple review, whatever, says, I knew exactly what that person was thinking and feeling. I didn't know somebody felt the same way I did. Uh, and that, to me, is, is the ultimate connection, right? That, that's how we are helping other veterans or other people at least try and figure out, you know, where they are mentally. And the second biggest compliment we get is from people who listen to this show and go, well, now I want to join the military because of, because of this show. And I'm like, whoa, 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 don't make a rash decision. <laughs> I kid. No, I kid. I kid. I kid. Uh, we, we, we do love hearing that. I, you know, I, wish pe- I can't tell you how many ROTC cadets and people who are, you know, reach out and say, hey, any words of advice you got for me, Mark? And I'm like, you know, dude, dude, we need to do a podcast in and of itself uh, for words of advice on, on how to survive through it, um, which is why I always ask the question to a lot of my guests, you know, what does, what does Lieutenant Colonel – Charlie Faint on November 1st of 2022. What does he go back and tell second Lieutenant Charlie Faint, uh, Captain Charlie Faint, Major Charlie Faint along the way? What words of advice would you go back and give to yourself at those kind of, you know, major junctures or seminal moments of your career? That's a great question. And I've had plenty of time to reflect on that as I, as I ease myself out of the military. I think anyone coming into the military, especially at this point in time, very unique point in time, in my experience, you just got to come in with your eyes wide open, understand what you're doing here. People are people wherever you go. There are good people in and out of uniform. And you have to come in understanding that and understanding what the military actually does, what its purpose is, and how it's going to function. Because if you don't, your first couple assignments might be really bad for you because you'll have your little bubble busted on what you think people should be doing. And when they don't act that way, it, it, it's it's kind of a hard thing to take. So I don't regret being in the military. I had bad experiences in my career, as we talked about at length here on the cast. But overall, I'm very proud of it. I'm glad I did it. And I'm grateful to the nation and the military for letting me be in. So if you want to join the military, Second Lieutenant Faint and everyone who's coming after you, go in with your eyes wide open, give it the best you can. And remember, it's always about the people. Yeah, and that's an exercise you can give to all your West Point cadets, too. Ask them to go back and give themselves advice throughout their teenage years uh, and where they are in the biggest moments. And then, you know, by the time they make captain, they can do the same thing and give themselves uh, advice as a graduating senior at West Point. And, you know, you go through that little mental exercise, you start to realize, genuinely realize what your, you know, and I don't want to say mistakes, but where those moments where you may have, uh, had a different course of action that you didn't choose and why you didn't choose it and understanding that. And that, I think, makes you a better leader. It makes you self-reflective. And, and ultimately, that's what leader, good leadership requires. It, it requires constant self-reflection on the things that you do, the decisions you make, how you treat people, how you execute missions or assignments and everything else. Uh, and, and you're constantly challenged to reevaluate that performance on a routine basis. And, and self-awareness is a big part of that. And if you don't have it, I don't know if you can ever have empathy as a leader. 
That's absolutely right. And you mentioned exercises. One of the things I had my class do when I was in charge of the MX 400 program was I had them write their own obituary. And this was something that, <laughs> that, yeah, it seems, it seems a little morbid, but in the context of the class, it, it made a lot of sense and it makes them think about how they want to be known. What kind of leader do you want to be? When you look back on your life and I told them, I was like, Hey, you can project yourself anywhere in the future. It could be the day after graduation. It could be 30 years from now. What is your, how is your obituary going to read? Because there was, uh, there's an obituary uh, on the wall inside the Simon Center that is by, uh, by uh, a, a guy who was killed in action in Vietnam. His name was Major Hoddle. And it was his self-reflection on his life and how grateful he was to serve. And it was published after his death in Vietnam. It was published on the front page of New York Times, a big deal. And I want them to, to see themselves as like, how do you want to be known, Lieutenant, when you graduate from West Point and down? Well, how do you want to live your life? So I think that was a great reflective exercise for them as well. It's something I thought about when you, when you mentioned what you just did, Mark. Yeah, I don't, I've never had to do that exercise. Um, I, I feel like the first sentence of my obituary reads, uh, Colonel retired Mark Zeno died uh, of heart failure while betting his 23-year-old fifth wife, Bambi, uh, at the age of 96. Somewhere in that range is kind of, you know, what I think the obituary starts like, but I don't know how it necessarily the rest of it ends, but that's, you know. See, I would take that total exercise as a joke, and that's exactly what I would do, and I would get yelled at for it. Um, but, you know, then again, uh, I'm not your standard Army officer, to say the least, so there that's is right. that. I, w- I would have been happy to read an article like that. It gives great insight into, into the cadets' personalities, too, which is also fun as an instructor. Yeah, well, again, and it's, you know, but part of that, too, and that's the other thing I would tell every cadet, just be genuine, be yourself. Yeah. If you don't fit into the mold of what the Army wants you to fit into, fit into your own mold. And just make sure that mold is consistent with Army values. That's it. Yes. That's the easiest way to do it. You don't have to fit in every box that the Army wants. I didn't fit in every box the Army wanted me to. But at the end of the day, I held to the, I, 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 as much as I remember when the Army values first came out and we made fun of them, like, you know, as, as Lieutenant, this was, yes. had to be about 25 years ago when the Army values first kind of burst onto the scene. Um, but you realize at the end of the day, those, those, are, those are cornerstone things that make up the quality of the individuals we have in our force. And if you stick to them, and it's what I say to everybody, if it's not illegal, immoral, or ethical, it doesn't put soldiers' lives in jeopardy, do it. Yeah. Just do it. We'll work out the rest. That's it. If it's cool. consistent with the Army values, you're fine. You can't go wrong. One of the, the frustrations that I had here was constantly hearing cadets tell me how they wanted, they're outside-the-box thinkers. And I think some, especially when they, they knew my background, they thought that was something that was going to impress me, but it, it's not because too, too often in my career, I, I have someone tell me they think outside the box, meaning uh, that they haven't spent the time to understand their profession and what's in the box and why it exists in the first place. It also signifies to me that they don't understand the army's leadership philosophy, disciplined initiative and accepting prudent risk are inherently part of the box. It's just when you're in these different types of units, the box just gets bigger and bigger based on how successful you are in the operating environment. So understand the box first, cadets, and what's in it and why it exists. Instead of trying to reinvent the wheel every time, you'll be a lot more successful down the road. Take all the initiative you want, but understand why things exist the way they are before you start going down a road that's going to get you in trouble or somebody killed for no reason. 
thinking outside the box doesn't include stepping on the box and destroying it. <laughs> That's it's a that good simple. point. I think I'll add that right? to, to my, you know, next you know, time my t-shirt. Thinking outside the box doesn't mean fold it up and recycle the box. Okay. <laughs> it just means that the box is next to you and you're outside of it and they both can work concurrent. Two things can be true at the same time. Cadet is what I'd tell them. So, yeah. um, and there, in, in, in order, and anybody who's smart, when they leave the box, they're taking elements of the box with them, yeah. right? They're, they're not right. They're not just abandoning it and, 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 and throwing a thermite grenade on it and saying, see ya. That's, yeah. that's, you know, that's called rogue, and there's a big difference. Yeah, and so, a, lot of the, a lot of the dumb ideas that you've got, we tried those before. That's why they're not in the box, because they're stupid. <laughs> we tried it. So, so don't, don't be dumb. Uh, yeah. Uh, wonderful lessons. I, I, you know, listen, I, I, you get me in a room with those cadets. I would talk for hours to them. I, I, you know, if you give me an opportunity to go sit at West Point, I would talk for hours with those and we'd have a blast. We'd have, have an you, absolute blast. Have you been here before, Mark? Have you no, I, you know, believe it or not, I never have, uh, never been to Mickey stadium either. Uh, want, want to go Hey, Look, see, look, I just got my army Navy football helmet. Yeah. Oh, very go nice. On. Go on. Look, I got a white one too. See, look, there we go. Bam. So, um, <laughs> No, I've never been, never been to West Point. I hear it's gorgeous. I hear it's nothing but amazing. Uh, I'd love to get up there sometime. Well, let's, let's talk offline about that. I'd love to have you up here and talk to some of the folks, especially the, the boy, guys boy. with the combat weapons team that I still work with. I think that would be the exact niche of cadet for you to talk with. I just want you to know as a disclaimer ahead of time, if you value that job, you might want to think twice about bringing me up there because <laughs> you will be called into question for your decision-making skills when it's all said and done. Going, Who the hell did you bring in here? What the frick is going on? Uh, no, I well, kid. Hey, um, I'll just I'll just counter that by saying the Modern War Institute bought Dennis Rodman here to talk to entire class of cadets uh, okay. a couple years well, ago. So they're probably uh, they're probably willing to tolerate some some risk to, to have you up here as well, Mark. It's good good to know. Uh, all right, guys, check out havocjournal.com. Also, secondmissionfoundation.org. Uh, just amazing institutions. Again, I can't speak highly enough about Havoc Journal. Uh, it is so great to get you on. I was actually like floored when you said you were a fan of the show and just surprised. Uh, I know we have a, a large audience here at the Hazard Ground, but, you know, um, when I look at other people who do military work out there, it's like uh, I feel like they're always so much bigger than what we do. And that's the way I look at Havoc Journal. It's just got such a, a foothold in the marketplace uh, of, the, of the veteran space for, for good reason. Like I don't say that uh, as a point of jealousy. I say like the, the, the work that you guys do is important and what you put out there it, it speaks to veterans in the veteran community, which is why it's so successful. And I'm, I'm certainly – Glad that, uh, one, you're a fan of the show, but two, that, that we have that sort of symmetry together that we're, we're both working in that same space as far as veterans is concerned. But it's great to, to get to know you. I, I'm, I'm excited to continue this relationship and, and hope that we continue to stay friends going forward. But it's certainly been amazing uh, to have you on here, hear your personal story and everything you've accomplished. Well, hey, Mark, thank you so much. Like I said, I've been a fan of your work for a very long time. Uh, flattered that you'd have me on the show. Look forward to future things, and uh, thank you for what you're doing for the veteran community in our nation. I really appreciate it, brother. Charlie Fain, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.